Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. So, the headline question today What is actually worth fighting for? For the people of Ukraine, it's their sovereignty, their country, their ability to have self-rule. For the women of Iran, it's their rights, human rights. But what about our American warriors, the women and men who wear the uniform? What sacrifices are they willing to make? What should they make? Let's talk about it. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. We are very thrilled to have joining us on the program once again, uh, one of our favorite inside sources, H.R. McMaster, of course, former national security advisor, uh, prolific writer on all things military and and really about the United States place in the world uh, and such a powerful perspective. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, boy, thanks for having me. This is a uh, there, there's a number of things I want to get to today. Uh, you had two just powerful pieces in the uh, fall digest for uh, Hoover Institute, and I want to start with uh, your your first piece, which was called "Warriors for Good: What Exactly Is Worth Fighting For." Uh, so, give us a little bit of of insight into terms of what is that? What is the Warriors for Good, and how does that relate? Well, thanks, Boyd. I, I think what Americans sometimes don't understand is that American warriors are both warriors and humanitarians. Humanitarians because they are fighting for the enemies of all humanity on on modern day frontiers between barbarism and civilization. And of course, I'm talking about jihadist terrorists, you know, who are enemies of all civilized people. But also what, what I think Americans don't see oftentimes is how our warriors take risks on themselves uh, to, to protect innocents uh, mm. every day in the wars that we've been fighting over, over recent decades and in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And and then you also, I think what's really important for Americans these days is to understand that the ethos, the yeah. ethos that, that explains, you know, why American servicemen and women serve. And I think, you know, I think the popular notions of service in our military are, are skewed and, and Hollywood, you know, often, cheapens and coarsens the warrior ethos and and, and doesn't really uh, as a result people don't understand the, the less tangible rewards of serving in, in our military yeah and let's let's dig into that because I do think that warrior ethos is is something that is so unique and and so powerful and I love the way you you described it uh, both in the context of, of what it is and then why it makes that sacrifice worthwhile thanks point I mean it really it is it, it's the ethos is what binds soldiers, warriors to one another, 
and to the society uh, in whose name they fight and, and serve. So it's a covenant. It's a covenant, you know, based on on trust. It's a covenant based on commitment uh, to defending their fellow citizens. And, and it's really what also explains unit cohesion, cohesion based on, on common purpose, uh, commitment to a mission bigger than themselves, and certainly a commitment to one another. I mean, it, good military units take on the quality of a family, a family in which the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. And, and that has a lot to do with a sense of honor and, and a, a desire not to let down you know, the, the members of, of this family. Um, but also a commitment to courage and self-sacrifice. And, and, and I think that's what makes our, our warriors special and what really is, it gives us uh, the combat prowess uh, that you see the American military display relative to other militaries. Yeah, one of the things that you pointed out in your piece was was this idea about leadership and that the leaders put the the mission accomplishment, the survival and well-being, really that covenant relationship that you just described. Uh, and that has so many uh, applications in so many places, uh, both in, in business and in our government and in our local communities. Uh, explain how you create that kind of culture and that kind of covenant connection. Well, Boyd, I think every leader should ask himself or herself, you know, what, what is your base motivation? Why are you in this leadership position? What, what gets you up every day and gets you excited about what you're doing? And, and hopefully it's, it's a mission. It's a mission that's bigger than oneself, that, that you're committed to across your team. And, you know, and, and then also it has, it has to do with obviously your commitment to those who you're serving with and who you're leading. And, and of course, I think whenever you see leaders who are ineffective or are toxic or create uh, create organizational cultures that are counterproductive or oppressive, those are leaders who are in it for themselves, right? For for him or herself, and yeah. and, and leaders who are maybe in it to maybe get the next promotion uh, in, instead of working together on the mission. You know, the the military always boils it down to something pretty simple, right? And and uh, and the definition of military leadership is that you provide. Uh, your organization and individuals in your organization with purpose, motivation, and direction. And of course, the military, uh, the military emphasizes leadership by example, right? Sharing the hardships of, of those that, who you're, you're leading uh, and, and leading by, by your example. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things you pointed out that I, I've been dying to ask you about is uh, you talk about this idea that flawed policies or strategies that are often, you know, Washington centric <laughs> or politically centric uh, and that the real test is is how you move that through down to that frontline soldier in terms of do they get it? Can they see it? And are they part of it? Absolutely, boy. You know, you know years ago, I wrote a book about how and why Vietnam became an American war. And I. I wrote it mainly because of my deep respect for veterans of the Vietnam War, a war in which it was very difficult uh, for, you know, for, for, for soldiers, for America's warriors to connect what they were doing, you know, the risks that they were taking, the sacrifices they were making to an achievement of an aim worthy of those risks and sacrifices. Sadly, I think flawed and inconsistent strategies uh, in, in Afghanistan uh, and in Iraq really replicated many of those same deficiencies. So the true test, I think, of the strategy is, you know, can, can a young lieutenant who's about to take his or her platoon out on a mission explain to their soldiers how, you know, the risks that they're taking and the sacrifices they may be called on to make are contributing to an outcome? They're you know, worthy of those risks and sacrifices. And I think what, what I lament in the essay is the tendency these days 
to, to commit to objectives other than winning in war. And you'll have people say, well, it's so hard to define winning. Well, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, yeah. winning in Afghanistan, winning in Afghanistan was uh, was to, you know, a sustainable political outcome there that involved an Afghan government and security forces who would continue to bear the brunt uh, against the Taliban and other terrorist organizations on this modern-day frontier between barbarism and civilization. And, of course, Afghanistan wasn't going to become Denmark, right? But it didn't need to become Denmark. Right. But instead of what we, we heard is people talking about a responsible end uh, of, of the war, you know, rather than winning, right, and sustaining that outcome. Obviously, at, 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 a, at a price, a cost, a risk that the American people would bear if they – I think they – and they would have if, they, if it had been explained to them what was at stake and what was the strategy to deliver an outcome at an acceptable cost and risk. And, you know, boy, years ago I boxed. You know, and I never got in the ring and said, hey, I just want to bring this to a responsible end. You know, and, and of course, the, the stakes the stakes are much lower in, in a boxing match than they are in war. So yeah. commitment to – if you don't commit to win – you create opportunities for your enemy because in war, each side tries to outdo the other. But boy, what I lament in the essay as well is if you're not committed to winning, that war may also be unethical yeah. because it doesn't meet Thomas's, Thomas Aquinas' standard of having a just end in mm. mind for the war. Yeah, and that's so important. And just to finally on that topic, uh, I, I think all of those things that you've just described uh, are really the, the under – the the pillars the foundation of of trust on one hand and then that confidence not arrogance but the confidence you have to have to actually win absolutely and, and that's what you see breaking down right in, in the Russian military is, yeah. is confidence they don't have confidence in one another you know when you're recruiting prisoners I mean the last person you want you know in an infantry platoon is a criminal right I mean what you need is is an organization that is bound together by that sacred trust and confidence that they have in, in, in one another and a common sense of honor. And, you know, what happens if you, if you don't have that commitment to, to, to an ethos like America's warrior ethos, you have units that are prone to disintegration. Mm. So a great, a great historian, John Keegan, wrote in a book called The Face of Battle. He wrote about changes in warfare mainly across, across four centuries. And looking at how battle changed in, in the same geographic area, you know, between, you know, between the Thirty Years' War uh, you know, to the Napoleonic Wars to World War One, but what he concluded is that there was there was more there was more continuity in these battles than change, yeah. and the continuity was human. And he said that battle is ultimately aimed at the disintegration of human groups, and so what you need to do is to steel s t e e l your units against disintegration, and you have to do that. Really, I think through the, your, the warrior ethos, yeah. tough training, uh, and the building of, of, of confidence. I love that idea of stealing, S-T-E-E-L, of really reinforcing and strengthening based on common values. We need a lot more of that in our communities and in our countries. This is one of those where we're going to stay with the question just a little bit longer. We'll continue my conversation with retired United States Army Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Of course, he was also a former United States National Security Advisor. Much more to come on Inside Sources. Stay with the question. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. 
I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. If you're just joining us, we have H.R. McMaster, of course, former national security advisor. He's the host of Battlegrounds. Uh, if you ever want to just listen to some amazing one-on-one conversations with senior foreign government leaders, uh, extraordinary conversations there. He's also the author of Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world, and uh, just extraordinary insight there. And uh, I want to shift gears now just a, a little bit and uh, jump into... Uh, some of the, the battlefield lessons that you've been recognizing uh, coming out of, of Ukraine, uh, the, the military lessons, uh, but also just the lessons of diplomacy, self-defense, risk, and, and uh, this big thing that I always worry about in Washington, self-delusion. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, we talk a lot about, about black swans, right, unanticipated events that have unforeseen consequences. Well, the reinvasion of, of Ukraine on February 24th, 2020, was a pink flamingo, right? It was, it was right in front of us. And I think yeah. we, have to, we, we have to ask, you know, why we, the Ukrainians, you know, the, the free world, the EU, NATO, were unable to deter Russia's attack. And I think it's because Putin perceived weakness. And we didn't do enough to, to help Ukrainians build up capabilities that would communicate to Russia in an unambiguous manner that they couldn't accomplish their objectives with the use of force. And in the lead up to, to the reinvasion, think about what we did. I mean, we actually we actually listed out everything we weren't going to do. Well, that's never been good to tell your adversary, <laughs> hey, here are, here are all the things I'm not going to do just in case. And it simplified Putin's decision making. Right. And then we pulled our, you know, under the auspices of, of not trying, you know, of trying not to provoke Putin. We pulled our naval vessels out of the Black Sea. We did not provide additional defensive capabilities to Ukraine. We evacuated all of our advisors and our embassy personnel. Mm. And, and then we offered Zelensky a ride out. And he said, hey, I don't need a ride. You know, how about some ammunition? <laughs> some weapons, I'm yeah. staying here. <laughs> right. So, so we, we really, we almost green-lighted the war. We've recovered to a certain extent since then. But I think what we've learned is that, is that weakness or the perception of weakness is provocative. Strength is not provocative. Yeah. And I, I, hope, I hope that we learn that fundamental lesson uh, re, you know, relearn it and apply it. And I think we're, it's past time now. I mean, you, you hear debates now of, you know, you know, we can't have a blank check for the Ukrainians. Actually, you know, $17 billion, is, it, it, it sounds like a lot. But when you consider, you know, the degree to which we're, we're having to replenish our own arms as part of that and everything else, you know, I think the Ukrainians obviously deserve our support. Uh, but, but also, this is, they're, they're fighting a war that is in the interest of the free world right. and, and American interest. Because, you know, an off-ramp for Putin has never led him to stop his aggression. An off-ramp is is an opportunity just to look for the next on-ramp. Right, right. So, you know, winning in war means convincing your enemy that your enemy's been defeated. So I, I hope that we stop metering the assistance to the Ukrainians, you know, give them you know, the long-range fires, the you know, the, the mobile uh, protected firepower, the protected mobility, the air defense capabilities, the you know, the long-range surveillance that, that would allow them to defend themselves against the, the continued indiscriminate mass murder of, you know, the, that the Russians are committing by bombarding residential areas and you know, the attack on the energy infrastructure, but also to, to reinforce uh, you know, their offensive capabilities. And as you've seen, you know, they've, been, they've been very successful 
And again, I think one of the reasons they've been successful is that human dimension of war. Yeah. You know, the, and, and, and the degree to which the Russian army, we've seen it disintegrate while, while the Ukrainians continue to, to demonstrate tremendous courage and valor on the battlefield. Yeah, so important. And uh, you also pointed out in uh, in your piece in the uh, Hoover Digest uh, just some of those those core lessons that we've got to make sure we both understand and then that we apply uh, today. One of those you talked about was the uh, great power competition is is not a relic of the past. Explain that to us. Well, I think after the Cold War, we were optimistic. You know, we had reasons to be optimistic, right? We, we won the Cold War. We had a lopsided victory over the fourth largest army in the world during the Gulf War in 1991. But I think you know, we, we, we bought into this idea, you know, of an end of history, that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. And that, and that you know, that, that great power competition was a relic of the, of the past, you know, and, and that our technological military prowess would guarantee our security going well into into the future. We, you heard language you know, invented about a, a global community or an international community. And, you know, the assumption was that there would be this condominium of nations and we'd come together to work cooperatively to solve, uh, to, to solve uh, it, uh, common problems. But of course, China, Russia, you know, Iran, North Korea, and other ideas. And these are hostile authoritarian regimes who don't want to support the, the, the global order that we envisioned. Right. They're actively undermining it and trying to rewrite the rules in their in their favor and, and against our interests. And, and so we have to compete effectively. I, I really think, boy, that we you know, our it was it was our decision to vacate key arenas of competition under these flawed assumptions. You know that that led uh, that led to um, to some of the difficulties we're having today uh, yeah. associated with with Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Yeah, no question about that. And uh, I want to get to a couple of things that you pointed out that I think kind of uh, are real dot connectors. Uh, you, you make the points around uh, you know it's it's always a mistake to rely on uh, authoritarian regimes for energy. You talked about single points of failure in supply chains uh, that really undermine sovereignty. Uh, and make it tough to to respond to aggression. Uh, what are some of those other lessons that we're seeing unfold, and and how do we get out in front of those? Well, I, you know, I think I think we have to we have to have sensible policies in place, you know, that prioritize uh, really you know energy security and how energy security has to be connected to national security, as well as to efforts to reduce carbon emissions, right, and deal with glo- global warming. What what we've done is is we've made decisions that are analogous to what Germany did in terms of giving authoritarian regimes coercive power over our economy. For example, we didn't stick with, you know, with, with the, the priority of, of achieving energy independence and then also being you know, part of the solution for, for global energy security um, by, by producing more and, and, and exporting more oil and, and, and especially natural gas. And, and, of course, our failure to do that has resulted in Countries burning more coal, uh, which is you know, which is, which produces more carbon emissions. That's my conversation with H.R. McMaster, retired United States Army Lieutenant General. Of course, he served as a National Security Advisor as well, and uh, really a fascinating military mind. And uh, I want to go back to a couple of the things that uh, General McMaster referenced that I think are, are really important for us to keep in mind. One is this idea that we we have to function from a position of strength. And really interesting, uh, General McMaster said, look, uh, often we, we don't want to act like we have power or be in that position of strength because we don't want to be provocative. 
to, to Russia or to China. And I love the way H.R. McMaster framed this. He said, no, it's just the opposite. He said, weakness is provocative. And I agree with General McMaster that it is the, the weakness, the perceived weakness, uh, that we would do anything about Ukraine that emboldened, provoked Vladimir Putin to say, not a problem for me to move in to Ukraine, to attack those sovereign borders uh, and the people of Ukraine. Uh, he said that strength is not provocative. As long as you're not flaunting it or shoving it in people's faces, when you are functioning from a position of strength, yeah, that's not provocative. That actually creates peace because it causes the other person, especially uh, bad guys, thugs, dictators, uh, it makes them calculate the cost of what would happen and who they're up against. And I think that's an, an important lesson uh, in terms of that uh, provocative. We don't want to be provocative, uh, but of course, it's strength that is not provocative. Also, I thought it very important. We often talk about, can we give Vladimir Putin an off-ramp? And McMaster's rejected that, saying giving Vladimir Putin an off-ramp just gives him an excuse to find a new on-ramp. And we saw that in Crimea uh, as he went in there and you back off and you get a truce and there's an off-ramp uh, and it's status quo for a little bit. And then he finds the next on-ramp. And here we are. And so we have to be very careful about on-ramps and off-ramps. And again, functioning from a position of strength and ultimately, of course, bringing it full circle uh, to the idea of our warriors in the United States, those women and men who put on the uniform of our country, uh, who are bound. I love the way he framed this bound by a covenant relationship around values and the people that they're protecting. That's a great way to look at it. We'll step aside for bottom of the hour news. Much more inside sources coming up on KSL News Radio. Stick around. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.